Hello, Dr. Reeves. Thank you for joining us this evening. I have a couple of questions for you about your book. Sure. Thank you for thank you for taking the time. Of course. In your book of Boys and Men, you discuss the gender achievement gap in education, beginning in kindergarten and continuing through graduate school. To what do you attribute this gender gap, and what solutions can you offer to address it? Well, the first thing to say is that it is a big gender gap. Not everyone is aware of this, but there's a, a much bigger gap in college campuses today than there was in 1972 when Title IX was passed. It's just the other way around. Uh, among high school graduates of those with the highest GPAs, two-thirds of them are girls. And that reflects what happens, as you say, to middle school all the way through. So there are now large and widening gender gaps that are leaving many boys and men behind. As to why, it's probably three main reasons. Number one, that boys develop a little bit later than girls on average. Uh, particularly in adolescence, so a 15-year-old boy is a little bit younger than a 15-year-old girl, just in terms of uh, maturity. Uh, not in terms of smarts, but in terms of turning your homework in, right? in terms of organization, discipline, etc. And I think that's now showing up. But we didn't show up before because we weren't encouraging girls to go on to higher education. Secondly, the style of learning, particularly in US colleges, has tilted quite a long way away from more vocational forms of learning. We underinvest in vocational forms of learning and we've moved more towards like book learning, standard academic learning, everything else equal. That, that tends to be a little bit more suited on average to girls than to boys. And so the lack of technical high school, shop class, apprenticeships, that all tends to disfavor boys a bit more than girls. And then last but not least, we've seen a dramatic decline in the share of male teachers in K-12 education. So in 1980, 33% of teachers were male. Now it's 23% and falling. And it looks like for boys, especially in subjects like English and other subjects, having a male teacher really helps. In just the same way, by the way, that it really helps girls to have a female teacher, especially in certain subjects. And so the, the fact that we are hollowing out our K-12 education system of men has particularly harmful effects on the outcomes for boys. In the last chapter of, of Boys and Men, you suggest men should be more active parents. I was intrigued by this concept because my father was the primary caregiver for my sister and me. Um, how do we as a society shift the lens away from men as the primary breadwinners to men as involved parents? Well, there's a role for culture and there's a role for policy. I think the role for culture is just to do a better job of celebrating the role that fathers play, but somewhere between the sort of old school ideas, you know, 50s sitcoms, leave it to beaver type stuff, I've forgotten how young you are, which is basically just the idea of like dad as the breadwinner, right? you wait till your father gets home approach to, uh, to being a father, or much more recently, the, what I'd call the kind of Simpsons, Homer Simpson approach, or even Phil in Modern Family, there's a, something of a kind of doofus dad now, where the presumption is that mum's the one who's got her act together, she's organized, and dad's just a bit chaotic and hasn't got his act together. And so it's really dumbing down uh, and is insulting, frankly, to fathers. And I was the primary care giver for my sons for many years too. And so we've just got to find a way to just have a more positive message culturally. But in terms of policy, it's hugely important that we introduce paid leave for fathers on an equal basis to mothers. And in my book, I propose six months of leave for both dads and mums. And 
The criticism is that that's just crazy utopian. But since then, the US military has introduced three months of paid leave for mothers and three months of paid leave for fathers on an equal footing. So if the US military can do it, it seems to me that maybe civilians should have it too. And that we shouldn't make the mistake of, through our policies around paid leave, for example, of presuming that mum is the one that stays home with the kids and dad is the one that keeps working. What couples choose to do is up to them, but it's very important that public policy doesn't send a message to dads that their main role is as breadwinner. The struggle for boys and men is not equal across racial and socioeconomic groups. Can you explain how intersectional identities affect the outcomes for boys and men? Sure. So intersectionality is one of those words whose ugliness shouldn't distract us from the, its, its usefulness, which is that when we're thinking about race gaps or class gaps or gender gaps, it's also important to think about race gaps by gender, gender gaps by race, class gaps by race, etc. And when you do that, what you find is that many of the gaps in education, for example, particularly disfavor black boys and men. That there is a much bigger gender gap in education between black girls and black boys. So for every one black man getting a college degree, there are now two black women. Actually, young black women are a little bit more likely to get a postgraduate degree now than young white men. And so by just sort of lumping everybody into one category, men, women, black, white, working class, etc., we lose some of the nuance about how different groups are struggling in different ways. And so in education, for example, it's quite clear that black boys and black men are the ones who are at the most disadvantaged, similarly the criminal justice system. But on the other hand, if you're looking for the victims of deaths from suicide, you're looking at white working class men much higher rates of suicide among that particular demographic. And so it's very important that as we think about uh, a particular issue that we look and see through those different lenses of race, class, gender, etc., sexual identity, like, okay, who is the, who's hurting most on this particular issue? And not have a presumption that it's always going to be group A or group B. And let that, that's a way just to let the data speak to us rather than us take our, our prejudices to the data. So there's this line in Washington, D.C., which is that we're going to have evidence-based policymaking. But what we very often get is policy-based evidence-making or, or prejudice-based evidence-making, which is like, this is my view of the world or this is the policy I'm invested in. Let's go find some evidence that it's working. And we've got to do the opposite of that. We've got to be honest about the facts, even when they're uncomfortable.